Romans 8, beginning at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Here's a book that each of you should have on a shelf or in your Kindle or your smartphone someplace. Because I'm old school and getting older, I think a book should be on your shelf. But I'll leave that to you. This is a book you should have. The title of it is Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, subtitled A Breviary of Sin, meaning a short summary of sin and its effects. It's a book about sin, but it isn't what you think. It's not really about vices and morality and do's and don'ts. It's really a book about hope because it gives the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ, the grand announcement of a king and savior who has come to free a people from their sins, but who has come also to put everything right, it gives that grand announcement a context. Sin is the backdrop against which we understand the gospel of Jesus. I want to read a couple of paragraphs from this book. It's from the first chapter of the book, so I hope you'll indulge me. In the film Grand Canyon, an immigration attorney breaks out of a traffic jam and attempts to bypass it. His route takes him along streets that seem progressively darker and more deserted. Then the predictable bonfire of the vanity's nightmare. His expensive car stalls on one of those alarming streets whose teenage guardians favor expensive guns and sneakers. The attorney does manage to phone for a tow truck, but before it arrives, five young street toughs surround his disabled car and threaten him with considerable bodily harm. And then, just in time, the tow truck shows up, and its driver, an earnest, genial man, begins to hook up the disabled car. The toughs protest. The truck driver is interrupting their meal. So the driver takes the leader of the group aside and attempts a five-sentence introduction to metaphysics. Man, he says, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that. This ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude 
is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. And then Plentigus says, the tow truck driver is an heir of St. Augustine, and his summary of the human predicament belongs in every book of theology. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And every one of us carries around with us evidence of that. Every one of us has walked through what the Heidelberg Catechism calls this sad world from the day of our birth across all of the days of our lives down to this day. Folks, I fully acknowledge that viewing life in this way is not American. America is a can-do culture, a get-it-done culture, a culture in which anything is possible. I, I watch golf, you know that. I watch PGA tournaments. I know what the banner line is beneath the PGA symbol when the PGA is marketing itself and promoting itself as a philanthropic organization. And when golf professionals, to their credit, walk into cancer hospitals and do the kinds of things that philanthropic people do. But my friends... It's wrong to say anything is possible. From the ridiculous, like me dunking a basketball, to people escaping the harsh, day-to-day, sober, sober realities of life. I, I don't look, this is not to be melodramatic. Bud and Ann Tobin are in the midst of life's inevitable uncertainty. And where she is is not the way things are supposed to be. All of which begs this question, it seems to me, in fact, begs several questions. All of which are related. And here's the first of them. How big is salvation? How big is this gospel that we talk about? How big is this good news announcement of a king who has come, who is also a savior, who has inaugurated a kingdom, who dies to redeem a people? How big is salvation? And here's the second question. How far-reaching is salvation? How far-reaching is it? And here's the third. How good is it? How big is it? How far-reaching is it? 
How good is it? Theologians, Cornelius Plantinga being just one of them among countless numbers of theologians, have sought across 20 centuries of the history of the church to answer those questions. It it, it is simply not possible in the next 30 minutes to do justice to the answers that they give. So all this is going to be is a mile marker along the way. All it can be is a pointer along the way. A pointer in the direction of just how big, how far-reaching, and how good this salvation really is that we have come at some level to know and understand. And I have to say, if there's, if there's anybody here who, who is disposed at this moment to dismiss all of this and go to sleep, please, may I, and I don't mean to be patronizing or condescending, what I want to say to you is, in the next 30 minutes, you may hear things more significant, more important than you have ever heard in your life. Not because I'm saying them. And not because I'm particularly good at expressing them, but because these things are the only hope you have. The only hope. The great hope is not 20th century technology. It's not America can do, get it done stuff. Your only hope is the gospel of the king. So how big is your salvation? Let me, let me just race across some things here. We're in the 8th chapter of Romans. Perhaps the most powerful, most densely packed, most significant chapter in the whole of the Bible. The stuff that is dealt with here takes months to unpack. But chapter 8 is in the midst of chapters 5 through 8. And if you'll go back probably a year to when we started this whole section, back in the first verses of chapter 5, if you remember back to those sermons, the thing that I wanted to point out to us then, that I've tried to return to periodically since, is that this whole section, chapters 5 through 8, is designed to give God's people assurance that their salvation really is big enough for them. It really is big enough for you. Think again of the things that have been said, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. Because what Paul is doing in chapters 5 through 8 is working out, focusing on some aspects of this in greater detail than others. Paul is working out the significance, the implications, the impact of what it is that Christ has done. And here is what Christ has done. He has secured for you a salvation that is big enough for you. And not only big enough for you, it is big enough for his people across the globe and across all of the centuries of human history. And so if it's big enough for them, it's big enough for you. And here are some of the details that Paul delineates as he works this through. See, if, look, if you're a Christian this morning, do you, do you know that having been justified by faith, you have peace with God? You have peace with God. 
Psalm 34, I cried, verse 4, I cried to the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all my fears. And you know what thing in the universe is the most to be afraid of? The Holy One of Israel. It ain't death, it ain't sickness, it ain't the loss of a job, it ain't a collapsed economy, forgive Forgive the street language. It isn't. It is the Holy One of Israel. And if you are a Christian this morning, you see what has happened at the cross. Two incredibly significant things happened at the cross. God the Father, because He loved you in the Son from before the foundation of the world, took your sin away from you, stripped you naked of all of your impurities, all of your unrighteousness, all of your sins and offenses committed against His holy majesty. He stripped you naked. He unrobed you. He unclothed you. And He took that clothing And he gave it to his son, Jesus, who is perfect in righteousness. And he transferred the pure and perfect righteousness of his son. And he clothed your nakedness with that righteousness. And that is the foundation of justification. This declaration that the God of heaven and earth, the Holy One of Israel, declares that you are innocent. Innocent of any charge that can be brought against you. You're innocent because that crime has met its just deserts, because that penalty has been paid at the cross. But not only that, see, how do we do this in 30 minutes? How do we remind, can I hear these things often enough? Not only are you declared righteous, Not only are you positively forgiven, not only are you accepted, not only are you justified, but you have gained access into his presence, Romans 5, 1 and 2, where you now stand firmly planted, never to be removed. Never to be removed. You all have seen these pictures. I think I mentioned them probably when when preaching through Romans 5. These famous pictures of John John Kennedy in the Oval Office peering out from beneath his father's desk. This is the President of the United States. This is the most important square footage in the whole of the world. This is the Chief Executive of the United States Government. This is the envy of the world. But do you know what it is for John John? It's his father. It's his father. It's his father's desk. And isn't that another glorious thing, jumping ahead to Romans chapter 8? You're you're not only forgiven. You're not only clothed in righteousness. You are not only accepted. You are the beloved child, the honored son of your heavenly father. Remember, sonship is not a gender thing. It has to do with standing. You are the precious, cherished child of this God. You are the honored child of the God of heaven and earth. And you are absolutely safe in his presence. You are more safe in his presence than little John John was tooling around underneath his dad's desk, punching the door out so that they could do a photo op. Absolutely secure. But not only are you justified, 
Not only are you adopted, not only do you have standing, not only do you have immediate access, but because of union with Christ, the very life of Jesus, the resurrection life of Jesus is flowing to you by virtue of your union with him, effected by the Holy Spirit. You know, the Canadians, I don't get how this works. The Canadians have all these sands up there along the border. Some physicist, somebody can explain this to me. But somehow you can take all that stuff and you can convert it to oil. But you've got to get it to a refinery, right? And there's this idea that we need to build this pipeline across the middle of America. Not interested in the politics, just the illustration. The point is there is a source of energy on the other side of the border and somehow we need to get, I'm not engaged in politics here, it's just an illustration, somehow we need to get connected to the source of energy. I heard an amen. I think that's not for the illustration, I think it's for the politics. (laughs) Right? Union with Christ means that the life-giving life of Jesus, by virtue of your connection to Him, effected by the Holy Spirit, you are connected to that resurrection life. And what that means is that transformation is taking place in your life right now. Paul, the older man, writing his second letter to the Corinthians, says, Though the outer man is wasting away, This inner man is being renewed day by day. Somewhere along the way, I caught up with this phrase or this phrase caught up with me. What Paul is expressing is a universal positive. It is true of every Christian. There's no footnote, there's no asterisk, there are no exceptions. If you are united to Jesus Christ, there is something going on in your soul. Your outer man may be decaying, falling apart, wasting away, but your inner man is being renewed day by day. And then here's the last thing, although there are so many things to be said about this. How big is this salvation There is an outcome to all of this. And that outcome is your glorification. What we talked about last week. The day of transformation, final perfection, final glorification. That is the final outcome of all of this. And what's so striking, Paul sees it as so real, so much a part of who we are, so true of who we are, that he describes it as being accomplished Later in Romans chapter 8, look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, we'll get there, hang on. Those whom he predestined, He also called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense verb. Paul views it as done, a fait accompli. This is another example of this already not yet business. Are you glorified? 
Yes, you are. Are you being glorified? Yes, you are. Will you be glorified? Yes, you will be. Someone has described grace as glory begun below. This is the final outcome for you. The final restoration of body and soul. The final perfection of body and soul. How big is your salvation? Is it big enough for all of that? Your forgiveness, your adoption, your transformation, your final glorification. Even in the face of the struggles of indwelling sin and in the face of a body that is deteriorating and falling apart, how big is your salvation? And here's the second thing. How far does it reach? How far does it reach? Paul tells us in these verses that it reaches beyond you and extends to the whole, the whole of the creation. It extends to the whole of the creation. Read verses 9 through 20, 19 through 21. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, meaning God, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And then verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. See what Paul says? He says two things about the creation. He says the creation is groaning. It's wonderful how the scriptures will attribute to the creation these characteristics and and attributes that are distinctly human. But read through the Psalms and read through the prophets and, and hear the prophets talking about the creation, speaking, Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. You can't go any place in the whole of the creation where their language is not heard. Or read in the prophets that talk about trees clapping their hands and mountains leaping and dancing. It's remarkable how the scriptures characterize the creation, personify the creation using these attributes and characteristics. Paul says the creation is groaning, groaning. Why is it groaning? Well, it's groaning because it's laboring under a curse. Let's start with us. Why do our bodies deteriorate and decay? Why is Antobin? In the hospital. Because our bodies are a part of the creation. And the creation labors under a curse. Now here's an important distinction. It's an important point. Somebody pointed this out to me several years ago. Sometimes we say that the whole world is fallen. Well, technically that's not correct. Human beings are fallen. 
Adam fell. And when Adam fell, he took us down with him. He fell from grace. He fell from righteousness. He fell from his place and role as image bearer and glory bearer. He fell from his ability to fulfill his role as the one who tends the garden, nurtures the garden, makes it fruitful. He fell from the glory of God by virtue of his sin. And you see, now he and the creation are at odds with one another, as are you. All of his progeny, all of his descendants across the whole of the human history have had to struggle against the creation. We're no longer masters over it. We're no longer lords over it. We have fallen. But the creation, the creation, not fallen, labors under a curse God cursed the ground. The text tells us that God set the creation in this condition of bondage to decay. It is God who subjected the creation. The creation didn't fall. The creation is cursed. Let me give you an illustration. I learned this uh, 30 years ago listening to a series of lectures by R.C. Sproul entitled The Holiness of God. In one of those lectures, he made reference to the story of Uzzah. Remember the story of Uzzah and the ark, 2 Samuel 6? You remember how they're taking the ark up to Jerusalem where the ark can be properly cared for and attended and put in its proper place? And, and Uzzah, who was a Kohathite, one of the tribes of the Levitical priesthood, Uzzah, when the ox cart is beginning to stagger and looks like it's going to fall over and the, and the ark begins to fall off of the ox cart, Uzzah reaches out his hand and touches the ark and he is smitten, he is struck dead on the spot. What is it, what is it that motivated Uzzah to put his hand out And stop the ark from falling. At least one of the things that Uzzah was concerned about is that if the ark should fall to the ground, it would become dirty. It would become contaminated. Why did people in Jerusalem, as Jesus entered the city, put their cloaks on a dirty road, put their cloaks on the back of a dirty donkey, so that the the coming King of glory might not be contaminated by the dirt on the donkey or the dirt on the street. Here's what we're saying. It isn't dirt that contaminates the ark. The dirt, whether the dirt of the streets of Jerusalem or the dirt on the path leading up to Jerusalem, the dirt has never raised its hand in the face of God, and cried out in defiance, I will be what I will be. I will do what I will do. If you take some dirt and you add some water, you get mud. The dirt and the water have never rebelled, have never said, I'm not going to do that. 
the creation always fulfills its God-designed intentions. It is human beings having rebelled against God who have corrupted themselves. And when Uzzah, the corrupted human being, touches the ark, violating specific legislation concerning the transporting of the ark, when Uzzah touches the ark, he is the unholy one who rightly suffers God's judgment. It's not the creation that is falling. The creation languishes under this curse that has been imposed upon it by God. But that curse was imposed by God because from the moment of the fall, God looking down the corridor of history, we ask sometimes, why did God let that happen? Taking a step back into the councils of eternity, we ask the more difficult question, why did God ordain that? And at least one of the answers is, That when God ordained the fall, when Adam fell, when the creation was subjected to futility, God the Father, looking down the corridors of history, knowing what his ultimate purpose was, his ultimate design was, God could see that the subjection of the creation to futility was a subjection in hope of the day when his Son, the great and glorious Savior, would himself, Free the creation from its bondage to decay. He would be the second Adam who would free the creation and then be the one to lead a whole people whom he had redeemed in caring for the creation. He subjected it in hope of that day. People fall. The creation is subject to a curse. And the creation now longs eagerly for its redemption. It longs eagerly for its redemption. J.B. Phillips, some of you may know this, J.B. Phillips translates it this way, the creation stands on tiptoe, looking for, anticipating, awaiting the day of its own liberation, the day when it can sing, The day when it can rejoice. The day when God's redemption comes to full flourishing flower and everything is put right. Everything is put right. The creation groans. The creation longs for that future day. And so how good is it going to be? What's it going to look like? How good is it going to be when this salvation, this redemption that Jesus has come to accomplish finds full expression when the creation is delivered from its bondage to decay? A couple of snapshots. Isaiah 35. Those of you who have been around here for a few years, know this passage, you know that it's one of my favorite passages along with a couple of dozen others. Isaiah 35, verses 1 and 2, listen to this. 
This is a snapshot. This is a picture. This is a look into the future. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. I think I've shared this before. I I don't know. I'm getting old too. I forget stuff. I even forget that I tell you that I forget stuff. But when you fly over North Africa at 39 or 40,000 feet, and I've done this, you fly over North Africa, once you cross from the Mediterranean over that seashore and are over North Africa, in every direction, all you see is sand. 40,000 feet up, no crocus, no lilies of the valley, nothing but barren desert. Folks, that's an evidence of the curse. That's an evidence of the struggle and the groaning and the anguish of the creation. And the day is coming when from 40,000 feet, the whole of the Sahara will erupt and explode in brilliant color. Look at the end of chapter 35. Verses 9 and 10. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. And everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You see, from the creation To the redeemed of the Lord, everybody and everything explodes and erupts in song on that day. Sorrow and sighing flee away. No lions, no tigers, no bears, no snakes. Played golf yesterday with a guy I'd never met before. There were three of us. We needed a fourth. He played with us. He clearly had a snake thing. Throughout the round, he's mentioning these pythons down in the Everglades. That's not a good thing, he said. And we get to the eighth fairway, and a little black racer is running across the middle of the fairway, and the dude doesn't want to go any any far farther forward. No more snakes. Nothing to terrorize. Nothing to frighten. How about another picture? Just a couple more pictures. Revelation 21. Let's go to the happy ending chapters of the story. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
don't be disheartened. I'm convinced there will be beaches and there will be oceans. There will be rivers and there will be streams. There will be lakes. There will be ponds in the new heaven and the new earth. The sea in the Revelation and going all the way back to the first chapters of the Bible, the sea is a place of chaos and danger. Think about it. The creation is drawn up out of the disordered chaos that existed before the ordering hand of God brought form out of formlessness, organization out of chaos, and filled up the emptiness with his glory. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. The sea is a place of terror and dread and fearsome beasts like Leviathan. Where is the place that Jonah is thrown as a judgment upon him for his unbelief and rebellion? Into the sea. What is it that happens in the days of Noah when God judges the world? He floods the world. He takes the same means out of which or by which the creation first emerged and he employs that means as a way of bringing judgment upon the earth. Chaos then replaces order. What is John saying? He isn't saying, no more walks on the beach at sunset. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying, every form of darkness, every form of chaos, every form of disorder, every type of emptiness, every kind of brokenness is gone. Gone. Just one more picture. Flip down to verse 25. Of Revelation 21. Start at verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Isn't it interesting how throughout the New Testament, with the exception of Matthew 24 and related passages, where the specific temple is referred to, isn't it interesting that the language with respect to the temple is always interchangeable? It is either the Lord God who is the temple, it is Jesus Christ who is the temple, or it is the people of God who are the temple. There's no temple in this place. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it for the glory of God gives it its light and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And then this verse, verse 25, and its gates will never be shut by day or by night. Its gates will never be shut. Why will its gates never be shut? Why do you shut gates? Why do you lock doors? Why do you button down the hatches? Because you fear intruders. And nothing alien, nothing foreign, no intruder will enter into this city. People come and go as they please. Because it's safe. It's safe. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying all of this. How big is your salvation touching you personally? How far does it extend? 
It extends to the whole of the creation and the liberation of the creation from its curse, which God imposed upon the creation so that he could display his son as a glorious liberator. And when that day comes, friends, it will be surpassingly good. So good I can't even begin to describe it. You can't even begin to comprehend it. Last week I was having lunch with a group of guys at Crispers. And the waitress uh, came to bring us our stuff. Actually, she was one of the managers. And we got into a conversation about how cold this little room was that we were meeting in. And one of us said, can you do something about the temperature? And she said, yeah, I'll do something about the temperature. And then she kind of rolled her eyes, shook her head, and said, management. And then she went on to talk about the fact that she'd been in this business for over 20 years, and in all of her years, and there was a touch of bitterness in her voice as she said this, in all of her years in this company and in other places, she had never seen a woman as a senior manager. And I said to her, there is a better day coming when everything will be put right. Brokenness, sickness, heartache, injustice, discrimination. Never in all of her years had she seen a woman. You know, it'll be Equal pay for equal work. And my guess is, in the new heaven and the new earth, when you put the women in charge of the thermostats, (laughs) things will be appropriately comfortable. (laughs) How big is your salvation? How far does it reach? And how good, how good is it going to be? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we are, I can't get my mind around this. I try to get my heart around it. I try to live in terms and in light of it. But I fall so far short. Please encourage me and encourage all of us with just how staggeringly immense is this great salvation which you, Lord Jesus, have secured for all of those whom the Father has given you. For all of those who turn to you in faith and entrust themselves to you, so great is this salvation. And you are to be praised. Amen.